Hi everyone, uh, I know what you're thinking, you're probably thinking, when is this lazy bitch ever going to upload us some new episodes? Because it's been a few weeks and don't worry, I have noticed. I have been a little bit busy, as has Ella, to be fair, um, with a lot of like book and business stuff and the podcast has kind of taken a backseat. But I wanted to just check in today because my second novel... Scenes of a Graphic Nature is out today on ebook and in audio formats. And, you know, this was supposed to be... <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting on my bed in the midst of coronavirus still, looking out on, like, the rainiest, greyest day. And, you know, this was supposed to be the day of the physical release. And this was a day that I thought about for a long time as I was writing the book, being like, oh, wow, when I have the launch and all my friends and everyone who helped with the book and inspired the book... I'm going to be all around me and we're going to be drinking together and celebrating and all that. But obviously that has not happened. (laughs) Um, The uh, hardback has been pushed back to August for coronavirus reasons. And um, people are going to be enjoying it digitally and on audio. I, I can't pretend like... It's not a like fairly disappointing and kind of anticlimactic way to release something that you've been working on for a really long time. But I'm still really excited about the book itself. And I really hope that some of you read it and like it and get in touch because, you know, I feel like we've, me and you, the sentimental garbage listeners and community and the people who email me and leave reviews and stuff, we have excellent taste. Like we, we like books and we know which books to like. And I would really love to have written a book that you guys feel as maybe as strongly about as you do the other things that we've covered on this podcast. Um, So let me tell you a little bit about it. It is a book about a English girl called Charlie Regan. She's a young filmmaker. Well, I say young. I mean, she's she's reaching 30. And she has spent the bulk of her 20s caring for her father, who is very, very sick and who is Irish. And One of these things about Charlie, she's kind of one of those people who doesn't know a ton about herself. So she clings very deeply to labels and descriptors that make her feel better about who she is. So she clings to being a filmmaker. She clings to being an artist. She clings to being a bohemian. And she clings to the fact that her father has this extremely unusual sort of origin story whereby he was the sole survivor of this big accident that happened in Ireland um, in rural Kerry in the 1960s. Now, the incident itself and the place it happened are totally fictional. I completely made them up. But they're the it's the kind of story that we're used to hearing from Ireland. It's that kind of like very gruesome, kind of random, sort of like what, those kind of stories you hear being like, God, why didn't I know about this before? But there's so much stuff that comes out of Ireland all the time that you're like, God, how do we let that shit just happen? Like, that's definitely how I feel as an Irish person and definitely how I've felt over the years as an Irish person living in England when, like, some terrible story will come out and um, it'll be up to me at, like, a dinner party explaining to my, like, very, like, sensitive Guardian reading, like, lefty London friends who care very much about the legacy of colonialism Um uh, like how to explain the context for all these like 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 child abuse within the church, for example, or like um stuff that happens within mother and baby homes. It's kind of up to you to explain that stuff to them, and that is very much concern a concern of the book. So we've got Charlie. 
She's a filmmaker. She's kind of obsessed with this tragedy that her father has lived through. And she has made a short film about it with her best friend, Laura, who she's also kind of low-key in love with, you know. Who hasn't been there? Um, And uh, they find themselves in Ireland visiting a film festival. And when they're showing the film at this festival, they realise, because somebody tells them, that this thing that her father has been mythologising to her her entire life has not gone the way that he said it went. It's actually a much thornier, much more difficult, much... A more seditious story and it's kind of up to Charlie to unravel it so on the one hand it's like a very straightforward like murder mystery detective like I had a lot of inspiration from like Raymond Chandler and that, that sort of like you know hard bitten detective walks into a bar and like talks to the sexy femme fatale barmaid and you know it's kind of got a few of those tropes like god knows I love a trope but at the same time it is a very it's a very millennial story about like friendship and lack of direction and how we deal with our legacy and how we deal with like cultural appropriation to an extent because Charlie's made this movie about a place she doesn't totally understand and uh, all of that is in there and yeah it kind of sort of sums up sort of both where I was in my life when I was writing it and the things I was concerned with, the concerns about whether I've spent so much time in England, whether I'm becoming more English than Irish, which is a big concern, you know, whether, like, how to make money as a creative person, like, how to deal with the death of loved ones, which happened to me twice during this book, how to deal with disease, which also happened a lot during this book. Like, I I can safely say that some of the most... um, traumatic but also intellectually interesting years happened to me while writing this book and it took a long time partly for emotional reasons and partly for financial reasons because I was trying to be a freelance journalist at the same time and uh, that involved a lot of picking up and putting down. Um, I hope any of this sounds vaguely interesting to you. I thought I would read an extract um, just to sort of wet your whistle a bit if you will. There's also going to be me and Ella. Ella is like my creative partner in many things and, you know, one of the people I trust the most in the world. And like she, this book is dedicated to her because she was the only person on this book to edit it as much as she did. She read it more times than anybody, probably even more than the editorial team. And they read it a lot and was such a guiding voice and such a, like a shoulder for me to cry on and... Basically, worked on this book so much and didn't get paid for it. So it is dedicated to her. And she has a very, very um, close relationship with this material. So we're going to do a a podcast discussing it, possibly in July. So if you wanted to, if you want to wait until August to get the hardback, that's totally fine. And I love that for you. That's good. And if you want to get an ebook or audio now, that's great too. So, okay, I am going to launch into a little extract I always feel very insecure about reading out loud, but I'm alone in my bedroom. So let's hope it goes better. Okay, so this scene is from, I think, chapter six, whereby we're learning about Charlie's relationship with her best friend, Laura, and they've just been um, invited to the Cork Film Festival to debut their short movie. I hold off on telling Laura about the Cork Film Festival until I see her for lunch on Saturday. This is mostly because every meeting with Laura lately is so peppered by her endless stream of exciting news that I have learned to hold some of my news back to make it seem like there's stuff going on in my life too. 
It's not how I'm used to communicating with her. After the first night in the shisha bar, our friendship became a round-the-clock commitment. For a long time, I assumed that Laura's interest in me was as fleeting as her interest in the boys she had saved me from, and so treated her presence in my life as though I were a small city that had somehow ended up hosting the Olympic Games. I stretched every resource I had to facilitate her. Going to parties I would never usually go to, societies I would usually be terrified to join, student protests where I had no idea exactly what I was marching against. We ran Venus in Film, a feminist newsletter that ran for three issues and mostly consisted of Laura furiously re-explaining the Bechdel test and me tentatively writing about why films like Hocus Pocus were secretly feminist. We loved feminism as long as things were secretly feminist because it saved us the intellectual rigour of having to read books like The Second Sex or The Feminine Mystique, which nobody wanted to do. We felt the same way about indie filmmakers. It was far better to dig through the films we had already seen and find new meaning in them because it saved us from the jealousy of watching people whose careers were blossoming in real time. It was not a good newsletter. In second year, we became housemates and it became clear that, for whatever reason, Laura was here to stay. We spent every moment together in our scummy little house share, took all the same glasses, had all the same ambitions. We never wanted to date the same gender, so there was never any romantic overlap. She was more interested in the tech side of filmmaking, whereas I was more into the writing, so we never fought over scripts or camera angles. We sailed along in happy codependence for all of uni, and then spent a few years in a house share in Clapham with six other 21-year-olds who self-defined as artists. We all made short films together, with equipment stolen from our runner jobs. We told ourselves it was okay because it was for our art. Each of us was convinced that Toilet, the talk show, a show where we took turns to interview each other while naked on the loo, was the height of Gonzo-style filmmaking and would definitely become a YouTube sensation. If we ever bothered to upload to YouTube, that is. Eventually, people started to move out. They got sick of being poor, so they moved in with their boyfriends and then moved home. Laura and I were disgusted. We knew that we had traded our right to economic solvency when we made the decision to become artists. But we also knew that what we got in the trade was far more valuable, the ability to make our early 20s last as long as we wanted them to. We interviewed new housemates based on who was talented and who we wanted to sleep with, which worked beautifully for a while. When we got bored of being the legacy tenants, we decided to share a one-room place in West Norwood where we made Village. But now, post-Clapham, post-Laura in West Norwood, post my utter failure to move through life at the same velocity as she seems able to, everything is different. Strange. Strained. I tried to pretend I don't know why and that it has nothing to do with the night before she moved out back in October, when the dynamic in our relationship began its slow shift from deeply intimate to affectionately casual. I meet her at the Water Poet because it's near Shoreditch High Street and therefore mere minutes from her new front door. She's still 20 minutes late, her long blonde hair and a Dutch girl plait around the crown of her head. I wave at her and get halfway out of my seat, wondering if I should go up and give her a big hug like old friends are meant to. It's only been two weeks, Charlie, since you last saw her, I remind myself. You saw her at a wedding literally two weeks ago. Relax. The end result is a cramped half-hug that makes me look like Quasimodo hurling himself at Esmeralda. All right, Heidi, I say, motioning to her hair. How's it going? What? She replies, already opening the menu. Then she fingers her head. Oh, this. Sorry. My hair was greasy, so I thought I'd pin it up off my face. It's a bit minging, I know. I have literally seen bridesmaids with worse hair than this, but I let it go. So, what's going on? Any news? Of course. There's news. There's always news, but before she tells it to me, she has to produce a loud, lip-flapping exhale that lets me know just how exhausting and tedious her activities are. 
Where to start? Okay, well, we just wrapped on Britain's deadliest plans, which was what you can charitably call an experience. Honestly, mate, you think there'd be some deadly plants around, but the only stories we got about were fucking mushrooms, which, you know, fine, it's good to have a couple of bits about how some mushrooms can be poisonous, but if you've sold a show to Channel 5 about Britain's deadliest plants, you can't just pivot to it being about Britain's deadliest mushrooms. I know this isn't glamorous work. I know there's nothing artistically satisfying about interviewing 10 people, all with the same mushroom story, but I feel a surge of envy when she talks about it. She's still in the industry. She's still working her way up. She's still training her camera on the unsuspecting British public. Every day she hones her skill a little more and moves another space away from me on the game board of our lives. Every step is a ladder for her, and I don't even have the drama and the chaos of a snake. What about you, anyway? How's your dad? He's fine. I never know how to respond to this question. He is not fine. He is waiting on yet another round of chemo that will guarantee either a long, slow, painful recovery or a long, slow, painful death. There is nothing fine about any of this, but in this bizarre framework of parental illness, we have decided that it's fine. He is not in immediate danger. He is not in torturous pain. He is not dying this week. This is what fine is now. She looks at me searchingly. How are you? Also fine. So you're both fine, then. Is that so hard to believe? Under the circumstances? A little, yes. A waitress appears. I am momentarily relieved of having to talk about my dad's illness. I try to shift the mood of our lunch into a more jolly upswing. We so rarely get to do this kind of thing anymore, and I'm determined that it doesn't become one of those maudlin friend meetups where she feels generous for having met up with me, but doesn't actually have a good time. Drinks, ladies? We'll take a bottle of your cheapest reddest wine, please, I say, my voice trying for abfab and landing somewhere in EastEnders. Two glasses. Um, Laura is looking at the menu. Since when did she become too good for the cheapest reddest wine? We can spring for the second cheapest, second reddest bottle of wine if it means so much to you. No, it's not that. I just don't want to get drunk, you know. I just have some editing to do tonight. I start to panic. But we're celebrating, I say. Both Laura and the waitress exchange a look as if deciding who is responsible for me. What are we celebrating? Bring us the bottle, I say to the waitress, and she goes. Laura's eyes are trained on me and I feel a surge of power. I fish the crumpled letter from the Cork Film Festival out of my coat pocket. She reads it silently first and then aloud. Well, fuck, she says finally. Right? If Ireland likes the movie, I know, then it must be good, right? Right, she says, or at least accurate. This is a tender issue for us. We have made a film about rural Ireland without setting foot in the country once, which doesn't seem to matter so much to people in the UK, but we know could go down badly with the Irish themselves. All through making it, I batted down questions about authenticity by saying that, as a half-Irish woman, I was more than capable of depicting the story. Plus, we had my dad, the only eyewitness you need for a story like this. Who would accuse me of cultural appropriation? We were bulletproof. But when it came to actually applying to Irish festivals, I stumbled over every line of written testimony. Who was I to make this film? What did I know? We have to go, Laura says decisively, and then stops herself. I mean, if you can go, we should go. Please, Dad basically begged me to go. He says he'll even pay for the flights. This means the world to him. The waitress returns with their bottle of wine, and Laura is whipping on her phone to sort dates. This is perfect, she says, taking a big lug out of her glass. I don't start my new job until June, so May is ideal. Wait, what? What new job? That was the other thing I wanted to tell you about, she says. Laura takes a deep, exaggerated breath. Oh God, news. Why does she always have to have news? I've been offered a year-long contract, Charlie. 
Oh, that's great. In LA. For a moment, I am totally speechless. The next year of my life unfolds in front of me like a paper fortune teller, each time revealing its own brand of isolation. Dad gone. Laura gone. Zero professional prospects. A side hustle in cheap porn and a mother who thinks working in a cafe is a shrewd career move. Don't go, I beg her silently. Don't go, don't go. That's amazing, I say, my mind racing with accusations. How fucking dare you? My fucking dad is dying, you fucking cunt. She pulls a book out of her bag, a hardback covered in post-its and dog-eared pages. It's called American Taste. It's about ranch hands in Texas. Think of Sons of Anarchy, but, you know, cows instead of motorbikes. And in the 1930s. I hold the book, my wrist suddenly feeling so weak that I almost drop it. The book has prestige written all over it. It has that dad book air of importance and respectability and is covered in quotes from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. This isn't just a tiny show that Laura has been asked to be on. She has been asked to join a machine. I want to vomit. That's so, so amazing, I say, and then I exclude myself to sit in the lid of the disabled toilet for as long as I think I can get away with it.